and we want to uh, continue just for a moment in prayer uh, as we prepare to open the word together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, the journey that you have set us on as believers. We thank you for uh, creating and birthing us in the first place and then rebirthing us into your family. We thank you for uh, the calling that you have uh, implanted in each one of us, the gifts and the talents that come along with the calling. Uh, Lord God, we thank you that you know the future, although that we, we do not, but we know that you are good. <clears throat> and even, Lord, if we struggle in the present moment, uh, we know, Lord, that you are working things out for a good purpose and that you have our best interests in mind. And so, Lord, I, I pray uh, for each of us that we would be reminded this morning that wherever we are in life, um, even if it's a place we don't want to be, you have us here to do ministry in this place that we're at. And Lord, help us this morning as we open your word. Uh, give us uh, grace. And get, help us to be alert this morning to what you would be saying to us. And for someone maybe here, Lord, I pray that this would be a paradigm-shifting time, uh, that they would hear something from you and be changed, transformed, perhaps a direction changed or whatever it might be. We pray these things trusting you that you are the all-powerful, almighty loving God, and we ask now for your help as listeners. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in what we might call the Genesis 3 moment, uh, that is when humankind fell into sin against God, one of the most devastating effects of that tragedy was the corruption of the human mind. The New Testament discusses the corruption of our minds that has resulted from the fall, and it does so in many places. For example, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we have descriptions of us prior to our being redeemed in Christ as being darkened in our understanding, Ephesians 4.18 and operating in the futility of our minds, Ephesians 4.17, and carrying out the fleshly desires of our minds, Ephesians 2, verse 3. And then over in Colossians 1.21, Paul describes fallen, unredeemed persons as being hostile in mind. In 1 Timothy 6.5, Paul mentions the depraved mind. And in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul talks there of unbelievers having blinded minds. And then, of course, in the first chapter of Romans, we have further descriptions of unredeemed, fallen persons as being futile in their thinking, Romans 1.21 Fallen persons as claiming wisdom, but actually being fools, Romans 1.22. And finally, in Romans 1.28, Paul says that the person who refuses to acknowledge God is given up by God to a debased mind. The clear testimony of the New Testament is that the human mind was radically affected 
by our fall into rebellion against God. Our rejection of God's truth led to us having unfit minds. And although our minds are still able to function, although we can yet make calculations and we can make many clear judgments on many things, our turn against God has left us pervasively confused and off track and distorted and contorted and lamed and blind and degraded in our thinking, in our thinking concerning God and in our thinking concerning God's world and in our thinking concerning our own nature as human persons. And yet, friends, in his matchless benevolence and grace... God in the New Testament, the same God whom we rebelled against, he holds out to us the pathway to the repair and renewal of our minds. Ephesians 4.23 is a statement of God's desire that we would be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Romans 12.2 also expresses the the same divine desire that we would be renewed in our minds. And so God's plan of redemption in Jesus Christ includes the renewal of our minds. 1 Corinthians 2.16 goes to an even more astonishing level when it declares that it is possible for human beings to have the mind of Christ. Wow. Well, this morning, and also for the next two Sundays, our plan, Lord willing, is to think together about our minds. Specifically, we want to meditate together on the shape and contours of the Christian mind and how to cultivate the Christian mind. Scripture declares that this is important to Almighty God. I want to begin here by taking us to Mark chapter 12 and verses 28 through 30, the passage that was read a little earlier in the service. In this passage, a scribe, or we might say uh, a religious expert in ancient Israel, approached Jesus and asked Jesus, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered the scribe in verses 29 and 30. Jesus provided the scribe with a slightly modified quote of Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The modification that Jesus makes to Deuteronomy 6 as he quotes it is that he adds the words, 
all your mind to the other three elements of all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. So that, according to Jesus, the most important command in all the Hebrew Bible is that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. Now, of course, we could very easily preach several sermons on this text. For example, what does it mean to love the Lord our God with all our heart? Or to love God with all our soul? Or with all our strength? There's a three-part sermon series already. But for our purposes today, all I want to do is focus on that one single part of verse 30, that we should love the Lord our God with all our mind. Friends, note very well that it is vital to Jesus Christ here that you and I, affected as we are so tragically by our fall into sin, that we should love God with all our mind. In fact, we can go so far as to say that it is part of your discipleship as a believer, no matter who you are, to intentionally and worshipfully develop a Christian mind, an engaged mind that is in love with God. But now, what does it mean precisely to love the Lord our God with all our Mind. Well, at the, at the most basic level, it means to love God by using the mind that he has designed. To love God with the mind that he has designed in us. But I rather like John Piper's discussion of what it means to love the Lord our God with all our mind. Piper says this, to love God, first of all, most essentially means to treasure God, to value Him, and to admire Him, and to desire Him. And, Piper says, to love God with all our mind means, listen, means that our thinking, he says, is wholly engaged to do all it can to awaken and express the heartfelt fullness of treasuring God above all things. Again, to love God with all our mind, says Piper, means that our thinking is wholly engaged to do all it can to awaken and express the heartfelt fullness of treasuring God above all things. Or, if you prefer, I also like the following description from Gene Vaith. Faith says that to love God with all your mind means that everything the mind is capable of doing is to be devoted to loving God. Yes, everything the mind is capable of doing is to be devoted to loving God. So that the implication is this. Faith says, it would seem then That if your mind can spin out complex mathematical calculations, you are to love God in mathematics. 
If your mind can plan a business, design a building, analyze a novel, understand a philosophical problem, or imagine a story, you are to love God in your planning, designing, analyzing, understanding, or imagining. Friends, we need to grasp that to think Christianly is not just to think about Christian topics. No, to borrow the words of Os Guinness, to think Christianly, to exercise the mind in worship to God and in love for God, is to learn to think about all of life, to think about anything and everything, in a manner that is shaped, directed, and restrained by the truth of God's Word and God's Spirit. So that you can be loving the Lord your God with all your mind as you ponder the design of a cabinet. Or as you think through the process of making ginger beer. I know that many of you do, and it's so good. You can love the Lord your God with all your mind as you crunch out your sociology assignment. Or as you program code. Or as you fold the laundry. Or as you spend time with your kids. The Christian mind is a mind that thinks within a Christian framework about all of life, all of reality. It's a mind that loves God and treasures Him and learns to view All of reality, all the details, the projects, the appointments, the lessons that come with each and every day, to view all of it in light of God and in light of his revelation and his presence and his purposes. Now, there are many reasons that could be mentioned as to why the development of a Christian mind is so vital and important for each of us. One of the most obvious reasons this is important is that in 2019, in the pluralistic culture in which we live, there are a host of different worldviews that vie for our attention. We are swimming in a sea of competing worldviews. As Christians... We need to nurture the intellectual ability to discern rightly what fits into the Christian framework and what needs to be discarded. And the development of the Christian mind is also important because we are also affected, each of us, more than we are probably aware we are affected, by what David Wells calls certain deep cultural currents that right now are flowing through our psyche. As just one example, take the consumer mentality that most of us in the West have rather uncritically adopted. That has become part of how we even view church. Most of us simply assume that we are like customers when we come in the doors of the church and that the leaders better give us the product that we desire or we'll go find another church. 
Well, a necessary question to ask is, how does the Christian mind challenge and correct such a rampant but misguided perspective? Friends, it is vital that we nurture the Christian mind. Next Sunday and the Sunday after that, uh, we're going to dive into the how-to of cultivating the Christian mind, and we're going to try to provide a sort of portrait of what a healthy Christian mind might look like. But this morning, what I want to do with the rest of our time is simply to give you several observations in two parts. And these observations are given with a purpose. They are given as a way to highlight the importance in our day of going about the task in obedience to Jesus Christ of developing our minds as Christians. The first half of the observations has to do with the state of the contemporary culture in which we live. So a little sketch of how people in today's world think. And of course, we can't totally separate ourselves from this part because many in the church are thinking largely as the world around us thinks because we have neglected the life of the mind. So that's the first half. And then the second half this morning will focus on the state of things within the evangelical movement, of which this Baptist church is a part. Where are evangelicals like us at in the early 21st century? How have we been thinking And how did we get here? What's positive about the exercise of the mind in today's evangelicalism? And what's not so positive? So now, the first half. A sketch, however brief and incomplete this is, of what has been called the postmodern mind. The mind or the thinking that we find commonly in our day out on the street. And just to define terms here, when I use the word postmodern mind, I'm talking about what Stan Grenz once described as an intellectual mood and an array of cultural expressions that call into question the ideals, principles, and values that lay at the heart of the modern mindset. One more time, an intellectual mood, postmodern, an intellectual mood and an array of cultural expressions that call into question the ideals, principles, and values that lay at the heart of the modern mindset. The postmodern mind that is common in our day is an outlook that largely rejects the modern outlook that had stemmed out of the late 17th and 18th century enlightenment. Now, just take a moment to look at this chart on screen. Where the claim of enlightenment thinkers was that human reason would guarantee inevitable progress that would eventually birth a human utopia... The postmodern mind sees the folly in such a claim and repudiates it. 
and where the Enlightenment's belief was that there was a universal, timeless truth and or narrative that encompassed all of humanity, the postmodern position is that there is no overarching meta-narrative and or supra-cultural truth that applies to everyone on earth. The claim of the postmodern mind, and this is important, the claim of the postmodern mind is that at the end of the day, all we have are private truths, private worldviews, private narratives. And so the postmodern mind, the common thinking in our culture, is highly relativistic in its outlook. That is to say that the postmodern thinker or postmodern thinking makes truth a matter of personal opinion, private judgment. The postmodern mind rejects the idea that there is objective truth out there that applies to everyone. And if you go about claiming that there is objective truth that applies to all people everywhere, the postmodern person will consider you to be a danger, not to mention arrogant and quite likely a bigot. To help us understand the essence of relativism, John Piper has written that the essence of relativism, listen, is that no one standard of true and false, right and wrong, good and bad, or beautiful and ugly, can preempt any other standard. No standard is valid for everyone. This is the claim of the postmodern mind. For many in our culture today, as we walk around in the streets of Montreal, for many in our culture, it is simply obscene to claim that there is an objective standard for true and false or right and wrong. We are giving a little sketch here of the postmodern mind. So far we've noted that the postmodern mind largely rejects or repudiates the values of the so-called modern mind. And the postmodern mind is also highly relativistic in its outlook. What's true for me is not true for you, that kind of thing. Along with all of this, we might also mention that since the 1960s or so, there has been a tremendous turn inward to the self. So that the culture in which we find ourselves is largely a self-oriented, self-focused, self-therapeutic culture where personal fulfillment and personal pleasure are at the top of the list as far as what is valued. And, of course, again, the church has not been immune from this tendency, this pressure to focus inordinately on the self. More on that later. What else can we say about the postmodern mind of our day? We might mention that the postmodern mind tends to be quite modern, in fact, in how it continues to almost deify science. 
and scientific methodology. Many people today still think that all that can be known is what can be empirically verified. Or, concerning the postmodern mind, we might also talk about the way that it prefers to use buzzwords in place of reasoned arguments. It tends to use emotional rhetoric in the place of substantial reasoning. We might also talk about the postmodern denial that texts have meaning inherent to them and that the author of the text intended a meaning. Postmoderns seem to prefer the idea that readers bring their own meanings to texts. We could also mention the relatively recent development within the postmodern mind concerning the view of personhood that Nancy Piercy has written about, where for the postmodern person, the human body can be conveniently separated from the human person. In this perspective, the human body is demeaned. The human body can be used for all sorts of pragmatic purposes, while the person is held somehow distinct or separate from the body. It's a relatively new development in our thinking, in our culture. Well, all of this, friends, all of this is given as a rough sketch, however incomplete it might be, of many of the characteristics of the postmodern mind in our day. And the question we are asking in these weeks is, why is it urgent for the church to nurture the Christian mind? How does the Christian mind challenge the thinking of the postmodern culture around us? How does it contrast with that kind of thinking? That's what we're trying to get at in these three weeks. How is obedience to the command of Jesus to love God with all our mind going to separate us from the postmodern mind and make us look attractively different within a postmodern culture? These are the questions that we're asking. But now, as promised... The second half, a sort of state of, of the union, however brief and incomplete, of the life of the mind in present-day evangelicalism, in the evangelical church. Meanwhile, in the church, where has our mind been at as evangelical believers over the past several decades? Have we been consciously proactively nurturing the life of the mind as we have been commanded to do by our Lord? Is there evidence that in the face of secularizing postmodern culture that the church has been zealously and consistently obeying our Lord in terms of loving him with all our mind? What is the condition of the Christian mind in the West today? Now here you're going you're gonna to hear me offer some strong critiques of us evangelical types, but I do so as a loving and concerned insider, as what you might call a person from within the fold who loves the fold but who yearns for more rigor in the thinking patterns of the fold so that God would be obeyed and God would be glorified. 
Now, as evangelical believers, historically we have displayed an admirable and noble range of strengths. Let's start there. For example, evangelicals have a history of compassion and care and generosity toward those in need. We also have a long history of believing in the ability of God to transform people. We believe rightly in the reality of conversion. And, as evangelicals, we are also a people who have always hoped in revival. Because we strongly believe that God can bring new life to situations of darkness and of deadness. So these are all strengths of the evangelical movement. And we could, of course, mention many others. But one of our greatest weaknesses, historically, has been in the area of the mind. I want you to hear three statements from three different writers. They've each written some very important books on the subject of the Christian mind. The first is from the British Anglican theologian Harry Blamires, who died just two years ago. Writing 56 years ago, in 1963, Blamires pronounced, there is no longer a Christian mind. There is still, of course, a Christian ethic, a Christian practice, and a Christian spirituality, but as a thinking being, the modern Christian has succumbed to secularization. And then listen also to Mark Knoll, an American Christian who is a historian. This quote comes from Knoll's important book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, which came out in 1994. Knoll wrote, The scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. Notwithstanding all their other virtues... American, and we could also easily add here Canadian, evangelicals are not exemplary for their thinking, and they have not been so for several generations. And then our third quote is taken from J.P. Moreland's book, Love Your God with All Your Mind, The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul. In the 2012 edition of Moreland's book, we find this sentence. He says, the contemporary Christian mind is starved. And as a result, we have small, impoverished souls. Ouch. Now, friends, from the perspective of many who have been thinking through all these issues, and from my perspective as your pastor as well, one of the major hindrances to the development of strong Christian thinking in the evangelical church is the ongoing presence in the church of this idea that humble ignorance is somehow better and more noble than a cultivated mind. Again, a great hindrance to the development of the Christian mind in the church is the ongoing presence in the church of this idea that humble ignorance is somehow better and more noble 
than a cultivated mind. Many people in the church are suspicious of intellectual pursuits. Many simply assume that too much thinking will somehow undermine faith and devotion. So they pit faith and devotion against the nurture of the mind. Or they pit the experience of the spirit against knowledge of doctrine and theology. As if the two are opposed. As if the two are forever separate, which they most certainly are not and never have been. With many believers, there is this distrust of thinking. Uh, and there's an almost automatic distaste for those Christians who would promote the nurture of the life of the mind. Such people who promote an increased intellectual life in the church are looked upon as being snobs, as being somewhat arrogant. The sum of the matter, my evangelical friends, is that there is a mood that persists within evangelicalism which has its roots all the way back to the Great Awakening in the 18th century. And this mood is called anti-intellectualism. I've got Patrick on the screen there. In many cases in the church, if you commit to exercise the mind and to spend the significant time that's necessary to nurture the life of the mind, you will be looked upon by many within the church as somehow less than spiritual, somehow less than practical, Never mind that Jesus has commanded every believer to love the Lord your God with all your mind. I am very much in agreement with John Stott, who in his little book, Your Mind Matters, wrote that anti-intellectualism in the church is a serious evil. Stott argued that anti-intellectualism is not true piety at all, but part of the fashion of the world, and therefore a form of worldliness. Stott said, to denigrate the mind is to undermine foundational Christian doctrines. He asks, has God created us rational beings, and shall we deny our humanity, which he has given us? Has God spoken to us, and shall we not listen to his words? Has God renewed our mind through Christ, and shall we not think with it? Now, if you've known me for any length of time, you'll know that I've always been a person who is a strong advocate for rigorous thinking in the church. But thinking that must be tempered, as John Piper has written, it must be tempered with humility, with faithfulness, with prayerfulness, with spirit dependence. What the Lord wants in his church friends is not less thinking, but rather minds on fire that are in love with God and humble and teachable before him. 
Now, sadly and very unfortunately, the anti-intellectual mood that yet persists amongst many evangelicals has spawned many negative trends and problems. In his 1994 book, I love the title, Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, Why Evangelicals Don't Think and What to Do About It, Oz Guinness listed superficial or bad theology in the church as having a direct connection to anti-intellectualism. He also named things like the lack of a serious apology, or we could say lack of a, a serious reasoned argumentation for the faith, and the lack of a constructive public philosophy, and the continued defections of thinking evangelicals in the direction of Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. All of this, he said, is connected to the blight of anti-intellectualism that has been present amongst evangelicals for centuries now. We could also talk at some length, if we wanted to, of how a lack of rigorous thinking in the church has led to the uncritical entrance and the adoption of a consumeristic approach to church. We mentioned this earlier. The question that would be worth asking is this. Is the consumer sovereign in the church like he or she is over at Walmart? Or is somebody else sovereign in the church? Do we start with the felt needs of contemporary people and base our church life on those felt needs? Or do we start with God's revelation, which declares that as sinners, we really don't know what we need because we're confused about ourselves? Do we base what we do in the church on the psychological and spiritual desires of customers? Or do we base it rather on the truth of God's revealed word, which always calls human desires and needs into question? And for that matter, are we as the church of Jesus Christ thinking rigorously and critically enough through another very common assumption amongst us as evangelicals in a postmodern culture, the common assumption that the goal of life is to be self-fulfilled and happy and to feel good about oneself. Have we as the church stopped to weigh in critically on that very assumption or have we bought it hook, line, and sinker, so that the church itself has eroded now to the point that church is understood merely as a therapeutic enterprise where the mistaken idea is that God is a cosmic butler. God is a divine therapist who, who exists only to make us feel good about ourselves. Have we bought into that? David Wells has written, Christianity has become increasingly reduced simply to private, internal, therapeutic experience. Why? Because now our culture thinks in psychological ways. 
Yes, we have uncritically adopted these things into the church. In another place, Wells writes, so much evangelical church practice, so much of its preaching, so much of what people have come to think of as being evangelical is actually self-oriented and not God-oriented. It is about what we do, he says, about what we get, not about what God has done or about what he gives us in Christ. It is about getting what we want as religious consumers, not about receiving what God has given us in Christ's death in our place and in his written word. Or to quote Mike Horton, in many cases, church has become about peace of mind rather than about peace with God. Still another negative trend in the contemporary evangelical church has been the fascination, especially through the 80s and 90s, so recent years, uh, with marketing the church and with pragmatism and number counting and a business approach to church. This is where technique became much more important than truth. And where, as Os Guinness has written, I love this, know whom, know whom, faded before know how. Know whom, faded before know how. Guinness says that the church in many cases in that very recent era became rich in ingenuity and organization, but poor in spirituality, and it had superficial, if not banal, doctrine. We might say that the church growth movement prized the building of numbers over the building of Christian holiness, Christian character, and godliness. Well, I could go on here, friends, in, in a critique of this movement called evangelicalism. I could go on because no tomatoes have come up here thrown at me yet. Again, I'm still part of the evangelical movement, and I still love it. But we have to think critically about where we've been and where we are. I'm going to leave it there for now. The point we've been trying to make this morning is that when you look at the evidence, the conclusion has to be that on the whole, we as evangelical believers in the West over many, many decades now have not obeyed the command of Jesus to love him with all our minds as we ought. And so the best thing for us to do, collectively and individually, is to repent. To confess our sin in this area of the mind and to turn from the anti-intellectualism that has characterized us and turn toward obedience to Christ's command to love God with all our mind. Mark Knoll writes, Evangelicals need to repent of their refusal to think Christianly and to develop the mind of Christ. Os Guinness agrees with Noel when he says this, We evangelicals need to confess individually and collectively that we have betrayed the great commandment to love God with our minds. He says, We need to confess that we have given ourselves up to countless forms of unutterable folly, God has given us minds, but many of us have left them underdeveloped or undeveloped. God has given us education beyond, beyond that of most people in human history, but we have used it for other ends. 
God has given us great exemplars of thinking in Christian history, but we have ignored them or we have admired them for other virtues. God has given us opportunities, but we have failed to grasp them because we have refused to think them through before him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as your pastor, I echo the words of J.P. Moreland, who says this, we must recapture our intellectual heritage if we are to present to our brothers and sisters, our children, and a post-Christian culture a version of Christianity rich and deep enough to challenge the dehumanizing structures and habits habits of thought of a society gone mad. Whoever you are, Christian, and in whatever station of life you find yourself in, the call of Jesus does not change. You are to love the Lord your God with all your mind. Oh, you may not be called to engage the mind in terms of a scholarly vocation, but even so, in whatever place you find yourself in life, Jesus still calls you to love him by nurturing your mind for his glory and for the benefit of your neighbor. Just as the average Joe who goes to BuzzFit to work out might not ever be called to play for the Montreal Alouettes, it is nevertheless good that he's in the gym trying to work the beer belly off, getting exercise, right? Just as it's good that each of us, even if we're not specifically called to an intellectual vocation, that we purposely nurture our mind in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, this week, this week, and I'm going to ask this question of some of you after as we fellowship. So if you want to avoid me, you can. But I'm going to ask you, how will you consciously and proactively seek to obey the Lord in this matter for his glory, for your own benefit, and for the benefit of your neighbor? Let's pray together. Father, we praise you, we adore you, we bring glory to you for the minds that you have created in each one of us. What a gift. Lord, thank you for uh, this text. We know that your command stands today in 2019 for each and every one of us as a believer that we would nurture our renewed minds that we would, uh, Lord, seek the life of the mind, engaging the mind. And, Lord, let us never uh, lose focus of the part of the text that says, love the Lord your God with all your mind. Lord, this is about love for you and love for our neighbors. So we pray, Lord, help us, remind us this week, uh, Lord, uh, help us to be creative with our minds in how are we going to obey this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now go from this place with God's righteous yearnings for you etched upon your mind. Tie them as memos on your finger, lest you forget. Go from this place remembering that our God remains faithful forever. Our God provides. Our God watches over us.
and our God reigns forever. Amen.